0: Good afternoon. It is a pleasure to see all of you here today and to worship the God of heaven together with you all. Um, For those of you who don't know me, I think everybody does, but just in case, I'm a deacon here at the church and also the pastoral intern, and I have the privilege of preaching the word of God to you all and to myself as well today in Pastor Nick's absence. Today we will continue with a long-running intermittent series which we have had on the book of Colossians. Uh, We've studied it together over the past years uh, whenever I've had the opportunity to preach. Um, In previous sermons, in chapter 1, we saw how Paul greets and encourages the Colossians. We've seen him speak eloquently about the supremacy of Christ and saw him speak about his own ministry and how he was laboring for the Colossians and other churches like them. In chapter 2, we witnessed Paul systematically destroy the false teachings that were plaguing the Colossian church, teachings that downplayed the supremacy of Christ and encouraged the Colossians to rely on other powers for their salvation and protection. We also have made our way through the majority of chapter 3, where Paul is pivoted to the implications of the supremacy of Christ in the life of Christians, both in the behaviors of the old flesh that must be put to death, as well as the behaviors of the new man that we must walk in and live out. Today we will study together the remainder of chapter 3 as well as the first verse of chapter 4. This passage contains Paul's instructions for how Christians should live out their faith in the roles in which God has placed them, whether husband or wife, parent or child, master or slave. So please turn with me to Colossians as we read chapter 3, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 1. This is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. have a master in heaven. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that you have given to us through here in Colossians, the Apostle Paul, that you have been so gracious to us as to show us how we might live in our day-to-day life as husband or wife, as parent or child, as someone in submission to authority or someone in authority, how we might live in a way that honors you, that brings glory to you, and is in accordance with our new reality as saved believers in Christ. Lord, I pray that as we study your word today that you would convict us of our past and our current failures, that you would encourage us to live our lives in such a way that glorifies you, that is in accordance with your word, that it would encourage us to come to you day after day in repentance for where we have failed in seeking out your strength and your help in order to accomplish that which you have instructed us to do. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our sermon today will consist of three different points. The text made that relatively straightforward as we examine the three bilateral relationships in this passage. Firstly, we have husbands and wives in the Lord. Secondly, parents and children in the Lord. And thirdly, masters and slaves in the Lord. When studying this passage, it can be easy to separate it from the broader context of the surrounding verses. There is no therefore, but, or and that is connecting it to what has come before And most Bibles will separate it under its own header, like in my ESV study Bible, which titles it Rules for Christian Households. But the verses immediately preceding this passage are vital for understanding the larger point that Paul is trying to make. Paul, in verses 12 through 16, which we studied last time, showed how believers ought to love and to worship alongside one another. This love that brothers and sisters in Christ have or should have for one another is the foremost outward marker of the power of the gospel. But the effects of the gospel do not end at the doorways of the church building. In verse 17, Paul says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything that the believer says or does should be done in Jesus' name for his glory. Not just our prayers, not just our worship, but all of our lives in every role in which God has placed us. In verses 18 and 19 of our passage today, Paul hones in on the marriage relationship. Let's look at those verses together again. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Paul's first instruction is that wives should submit to their husbands. As hard as it might be for us to believe, this would have not been a strange or particularly difficult instruction for the wives in the Colossian church. In fact, when comparing it to the world around them, it probably seemed radically countercultural and pro-woman. In Greco-Roman culture, wives were considered to be the property of their husbands, having very little in the way of legal rights and expected, indeed required, to obey every command of their husband. Abuse and infidelity on the part of husbands was rampant, and women had little to no recourse to address these wrongs Or to receive help. In contrast, Paul uses different words when talking about the relationship between husband and wife than he uses when talking about the relationship between father and child or master and slave. Those words are correctly in the ESV, in my opinion, translated submit and obey, respectively. This is an important distinction. Paul does not tell wives they should obey. He tells them that they should submit. This still implies that a wife should follow the lead of her husband and defer to his decisions when really no agreement can be found within the marriage relationship. Paul writes that this is fitting in the Lord. It is something that Christians are expected to do. But it does rule out the kind of unthinking, reflexive obedience that is required of children and slaves in the Bible and was required of wives in Greco-Roman society. And while Paul doesn't give a reason in this passage for this command to submit, apart from calling it fitting, we can look to some other places for an explanation of why this would be the case. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God creates Eve as a remedy for the aloneness of Adam, saying, I will make him a helper fit for him. This illustrates already at the very beginning of time the dynamic being established of the wife coming alongside and supporting her husband in chapter three, verse sixteen of Genesis, when declaring the consequences of the fall, God says of women that her desire will be for her husband, and he shall rule over you and in First Corinthians chapter eleven, verses eight through nine. Paul writes, Woman is the glory of man, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This clearly establishes that one of the reasons for this biblical ordering of marriage is that women were created to help and come alongside men rather than vice versa. But there is another, even greater, biblical reason, which we find in a virtually identical passage to ours in Colossians, about roles in the household, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. Uh, Let's turn there together and leave a bookmark or something, because we will reference this section of Ephesians quite a few more times in the rest of the sermon. That's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The joyful submission of wives to their husbands is nothing less than a symbolic picture of the church's joyful submission to Jesus Christ, a physical, tangible representation of a glorious spiritual reality when a wife submits to her husband she is in a way exemplifying an aspect of the gospel going back to colossians however paul does not address only wives as he might ex- as his readers at that time might have expected from contemporary culture but he also addresses husbands writing in verse 19 husbands Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, this command for husbands to love their wives was already countercultural in and of itself, in that it actually placed a demand upon husbands in their relationship to their wives and not just vice versa. But if we look again in Ephesians 5, At verses 25 through 33, we can see Paul take this idea and hash it out even further. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So husbands also have the incredible privilege of displaying the mystery of Christ's love for the church in our lives, in the way that we love and care for and sacrifice for our wives. But it's not just a privilege, it is a weighty responsibility. We cannot possibly live up to the standard that Jesus sets for us here, but we must strive towards it. We cannot rest on our laurels, thinking to ourselves that God has placed us in authority and God has given us a wife in order that we might have all our desires fulfilled with her serving us. Instead, we must put our wives before ourselves, recognizing that the leadership which we have been given is not for our sake, is not for the sake of domination or serving our own desires, but is for the sake of serving, loving, and caring for our wives, and being a picture of Christ's love for the church. If God desired that husbands lord over their wives like hired servants with little to no mutual consulting and anything less than unquestioning and hesitating obedience required, then Paul would have used the same imperative verb, obey, for wives as he uses for children and slaves. Instead, when combined with Paul's instruction to wives, we see a biblical model placed before us of a relationship where a husband cares for his wife, where both parties work together and strive after harmony, and where the husband's sacrificial servant leadership is reciprocated by the willing and supportive respect and deference of his wife. We will all fail to live up to this model perfectly. Indeed, we and I fail every hour of every day to display the perfect love and selflessness of Jesus to our spouses. But that is where the great news of the gospel comes in. We have forgiveness in Christ for our failures. And in Christ, we receive the grace from God that enables us to model the relationship of Christ to his church and the church to Christ better and better day by day. That brings us to our second point, parents and children in the Lord. Let's look at verses 20 and 21 together again, where Paul writes, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Moving on from the closest interpersonal relationship that there is between husband and wife, Paul here comes to the second closest relationship, that between parents and And their children. Like his instructions regarding the relationship between husband and wife, he grounds his instructions to children in the Old Testament, this time echoing the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, where God says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Paul notes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2, that this is the first commandment with a promise. While all of God's laws are beneficial and lead to human flourishing, it seems that this is especially true of this law. And is that really surprising? All too often, we see, I know I see, the results of when children are never taught to honor and obey their parents, or any kind of authority for that matter, leading to immature, rebellious, and lazy young people becoming a burden on society and on themselves in the long run. Looking at it from another perspective, consider how many elderly men and women languish in nursing homes across the West receiving hardly a visit or even a phone call from their children or from their grandchildren. A situation where old age becomes feared and despised instead of honored and appreciated, as the Bible commands us to do. Surely this is also a symptom of a society where children do not honor their parents And how much would every individual on the earth be blessed if that were to change? Of course, children will never honor their fathers and their mothers unless they are taught to. They will never obey them unless they are given boundaries and are disciplined. The duty to instill this ultimately falls on the parents. And if this duty is neglected, the consequences are disastrous. As a commentator, William Hendrickson says, godly parents do not inflict upon their children the cruelty of telling them that they should do just as they please. And as Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Again, however, Paul does not leave the obligations running in only one direction, but he also warns fathers against provoking their children. While mothers are certainly also included in this prohibition, most commentators think that fathers here are being specifically addressed because they are the head of the household and are ultimately responsible for how their children are brought up. Looking at Ephesians again in chapter 6, verse 4, Paul writes, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So we see that In Colossians and in Ephesians, Paul warns fathers against provoking their children. But we also see that the outcome that he warns them to avoid is different. Discouragement in Colossians and anger in Ephesians. This actually makes a lot of sense, in my opinion. If you think about if a father is constantly harsh with his children showing anger, lashing out, withholding love, while constantly pointing out failures and minimizing successes, then it is likely that the child will react in one of two different ways. Either their spirit will be crushed and they will become timid and fearful, hiding their struggles and their sins away from view, for fear of how their parents will react or they will rebel, scorning rules and boundaries, turning the home into a war zone as they become older and eventually striking out on a life in society that is based on values that are as different as possible from those of their parents. Either way, the results are disastrous. Paul makes it clear again here that the authority that a father has as the head of a household and the duty that children have to obey him is not a blank check. It is instead an honorable but weighty responsibility to shape and mold a young life into one that will glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that is the note that I want to end this point on, especially since today is Father's Day in the United States. Fatherhood is a beautiful thing. It is an incredibly important thing, a thing that society has tried to diminish in importance. But what's from the Bible and from the consequences of that diminishing, we can see how important it is. It is one of the greatest blessings and honors that can be bestowed on a man. Yes, it is difficult. Yes, you have and will make mistakes and fail. But thanks be to God that fathers don't have to do it on their own. The Holy Spirit is working in you day in and day out making you more and more into an earthly father that reflects our heavenly father. And in Christ, there is grace, grace for every day and every hour where you can repent of your failures, receive unconditional forgiveness from your heavenly father and seek his strength to love and to lead your family better. That brings us to our third and final point, masters and slaves in the Lord. Finally, we see here that Paul moves on to the third relationship in this passage between slaves and their masters. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 22, through chapter 4, verse 1 again. Slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The very idea of slavery is one that flies so in the face of our modern values. And it can be hard for us to understand why Paul would write about it without condemning it or commanding the slave owners in the church to release their slaves. But while the Bible never explicitly condemns slavery, Paul and the Bible as a whole lay the groundwork for its abolition. Already in the Old Testament, slavery is addressed repeatedly, acknowledged, as an already existing and widespread practice in every society, but heavily restricted with laws to protect slaves. Israelite slaves were to be freed after just six years of service in the seventh Sabbath year. The killing and the maiming of slaves was heavily punished, and female slaves were even protected From sexual violence. All of these regulations were unique in their time and in their context and made it clear to the Israelites of the Old Testament that slaves were also human beings for whom God cared. Indeed, the race based chattel slavery, which was common in most of the New World until the 19th century, violated virtually all of the regulations placed upon slavery in the Old Testament, not even to mention the New Testament. The kidnapping, the racial prejudice, the sexual violence, the murder, the physical abuse that was common in the African slave trade was thoroughly, completely anti-biblical, And anyone who tries to say otherwise has simply not studied the Bible for themselves. In the New Testament, the concern for the welfare of slaves in the Old Testament is built upon and expanded, with slaves explicitly held up as the spiritual equals of their masters, with just as much claim upon the love, respect, in honor of their brothers and sisters in Christ as anyone else. Scholars estimate that in the Greco-Roman world, around one-third of the population was slaves. Their rights were roughly equivalent to what we are familiar with from the pre-Civil War American South. That is, they had virtually no rights at all and were often considered and treated as hardly better than animals by most. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul writes about slaves also, telling masters to stop their threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. His statement by Paul that God shows no partiality between master and slave would have sounded positively revolutionary to his contemporaries. Even more revolutionary was Paul's letter to Philemon on behalf of the escaped slave Onesimus, which letter most biblical scholars believe was sent alongside at the same time as his letter to the Colossians. In verse 16 of the letter to Philemon, Paul asks him to take Onesimus back no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Most commentators think here that Paul is purposely embracing ambiguity, not wanting to force Philemon to set Onesimus free, but clearly implying at the same time that it was his preference. Indeed, he implies that the right and the true application of the Christian command to love your brother would result in the end of the slave-master relationship and in the beginning of a brotherhood in Christ. With this background, Paul's instructions to slaves and masters in Colossians is also significant. Slaves are instructed to work hard, not for the sake of earthly rewards, of which most slaves had none to look forward to, but for the sake of heavenly rewards. They are reminded of the impartiality of God to those who are in Christ, that in God's eyes, slaves were seen as just as important as their masters. And while masters are instructed by Paul here to treat their slaves justly and fairly, that would also have been a shock to them given that is certainly not a requirement in Greco-Roman society. This is all well and good, you might be saying to yourself. This is a good history lesson, but what does it have to do with me? What do I take away from this? There are certainly no slaves in this church. There are no masters. And indeed, in our societies, slavery, as far as it exists, is completely criminalized and exists outside the bounds of what is regulated by normal society. What do we take away from this passage? If you are asking that question, I commend you. That's the sort of question that we should be asking when we study passages like this in the scriptures. And the answer is that while there are no longer masters or slaves in the vast majority of societies, there are quite a few parallels here that are applicable for the employee-employer relationship. Of course, the employee does not owe their employer their unwavering obedience and loyalty, as Paul commands slaves. But apart from that, the principles that Paul expounds are applicable for us. No matter our work, no matter how important it seems, Or how tedious it is, we can complete our tasks for the Lord and not for men. We can serve God faithfully in the small things and in the great things, giving real and true spiritual meaning to every single thing that we do. We do this in confidence that though the hard work that we do might not be recognized by our peers, by society. Indeed, Paul instructs us not to seek out that recognition or that approval, but we do it because we know that God is watching us and that we will be rewarded for our labor in heaven. And for those who are in positions of authority over others, Paul's words here apply just as much to you as to the slave masters of Colossae. Treat those who are under you justly and fairly. Use this position of authority that God has given to you to show those under your supervision the character of God, his justice. His mercy, His kindness, and His wisdom. For you are serving a master yourself. We have studied a great deal today about how we might honor God by taking up the roles that He has given us in life and carrying them out in a way that reflects what He has done for us and in us. But if you are not a Christian, If the truth of the gospel has not grasped hold of your heart, then all of your attempts to keep these rules and regulations, to follow these principles, will be in vain. You will strive, but you will fail. You will fail often, for you have nothing apart from your own strength, shot through with sin as it is, to rely upon. And when you fail, there will be no forgiveness. There will only be the piling up of a great heap of debt, a debt that you can never pay off and for which you must eventually give an account on the day of judgment. But there is a way to escape that. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down from heaven became man, lived the perfect life that we could not, died on the cross in our place, was raised on the third day. He offers you, you specifically, forgiveness of every sin, adoption, as a son or daughter of God and eternal life in his presence. All you must do is believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Nothing else is required. You have a great need, but Jesus Christ is a great Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word that you've given to us, for how powerfully it speaks to the different stations of lives that we find ourselves in. Lord, we pray that we would come away today feeling not discouraged, but encouraged. Encouraged knowing that we are not left to live this life On our own, in our own strength. And that we are not trying to build up merits or credits to achieve our salvation by our obedience, but that we know that we are saved in your Son. That it is him that you see when you look at us, and that we can call upon you to be our strength. As we go out into the world day after day in this earthly pilgrimage, striving to live in a way that glorifies you and reflects your character to those who are around us. Lord, I pray that you would give us that strength. We pray all these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.